since the words were written down. I can only imagine that any list of the most significant portions of Philippians includes this passage this morning. And maybe in part because of that, I think it best that we simply begin by hearing it read aloud. I'll start reading, as I said, at verse 19. And I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? The sentence begins at the end of verse 18. Paul says this, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And then the beginning of our text. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. I can only imagine that most of the time when our minds are brought to the subject of death as they are in part this morning, I can only imagine that typically it is an unpleasant experience for us to some degree. It's good for us to remember in cases like this the wisdom that we were given in Ecclesiastes 7 verses 2 and 4. This is what we read there. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for, because, this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the, house, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. In, in the text we have before us in Philippians 1, which is so powerful and so useful to us, Paul is describing an inner struggle that he is experiencing. This morning, we really have three goals together as we come at this passage. The first thing we're going to do is to try to understand better the struggle that he is describing. What is it that he's telling us about what's going on inside of him? And then secondly, what we want to do with that struggle as we understand it is to work to absorb it ourselves into what we could call our theology of death. So the second thing we'll do is we'll do just that. We'll work to absorb it into our theology of death. Third, we'll work to absorb it into our theology of life. How does this impact the way that we think about our death and therefore about our life? This is our goal this morning. We start by simply looking at the text and how Paul speaks about this struggle of his. We want to make sure we understand what he's describing. And one clarification that we need to make, when we say it out loud, it, it really is common sense 
Uh, and yet, because of how he words some of this, it is something we need to be clear about. Uh, we understand that Paul is not actually talking here about choosing whether he will live or die in this situation, is he? That is not a decision he has personal control over. He is in the hands of the Roman government. He is imprisoned. The outcome is not his to make. It's not his decision to make. Uh, and that's not what he's talking about. What makes that a bit confusing is the end of verse 22. What we read there is this. He says, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. The verb there certainly does mean choose, but not necessarily in an action-producing kind of way. Sometimes it's just speaking to the internal choice that we would make, what we would more often speak of as a preference of ours. What will my preference be? Which is why, for example, the Net Bible translates the end of verse 22 exactly like that, yet I don't know which I prefer. In other words, Paul is letting us in here on an internal struggle that he currently lives with. His imprisonment, uh, the danger that he has faced and continues to face uh, has made very real a number of possibilities for his near future. And he just said about all of them, verse 20, It is my eager expectation and hope that with full courage Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. If God delivers him from this current trial, he will live on. And in fact, he knows, verse 26 that if that is what the Lord grants, he will come and see these Philippians again. If God delivers him from this trial, if God does not deliver him from this trial, he will die. Either way, what we've seen already is that he knows that Christ is going to be honored, and so he's content with either one. So this is not about a choice before him that he has to make. Another thing that this isn't is it isn't a conflict in Paul stemming from a lack of confidence. Paul here is full of confidence. Can you hear it? He is utterly confident in God's control over this entire situation. He says in verse 22 that if God wills him to live on in this life, that's what he means by in the flesh here, if God wills him to live on in this life, what will be the result of God's will that he live on? He knows without question what that will mean. It will mean fruitful labor in Paul. And that's a simple statement of tremendous confidence in God. If God chooses to keep him alive, God is not a God that wastes time. He has put his spirit into Paul. He has set Paul apart to be a vessel of mercy and to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And Paul knows that in 100 different ways, some of which Paul is aware of, God is making use of Paul in plans that will accomplish what Paul just said he desires more than anything, which is to honor Christ in his body. If he has me on this earth tomorrow, it will simply mean that God plans to continue making use of me for his purposes. Paul is completely confident in that. He goes into detail about this confidence in the ongoing work of God through his life. Verses 24 and 25 add some more detail to the kind of fruitful labor that Paul is envisioning here. Continuing in this life will mean fruitful labor because it will mean the accomplishing of something, verse 24, necessary on your account, he says to the Philippians, and something contributing to their progress and joy in the faith, verse 25. 
In other words, Paul is confident in this. He is expecting this, that so long as God chooses to keep him on this earth, God will be using him as a means to bless and sanctify the children of God that have been put around Paul, that have been put into his sphere. That's something we'll look at more carefully a bit later. But one more thing to notice about this confidence and about the, what it says about the, the struggle that he is dealing with, I think it's very noteworthy. I mean, in light of that confidence, the fact that Paul describes to us here a great internal conflict shows us that what he's wrestling with, he's wrestling with at the level of his desire. That's where this conflict is coming from. It's coming from his desires, which is amazing. In light of this confidence he just described, I mean, all of that expectation of God's accomplishing great things, Paul weighs all of that, all from the preservation of his own life and the benefits that's going to afford, he weighs that against what he knows about the notion of his death. And his conclusion is, it's genuinely hard to say which one I prefer. That's amazing. Verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Into verse 22, I genuinely do not know which one I prefer. Verse 23, I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Why is Paul so torn about this question? Would you agree it's not a question that you and I are mostly torn between most times, is it? If we're, off, if we're honest. And yet Paul is. So the last question, it seems to me we need to ask about the struggle we're seeing in Paul is, is Paul giving us a bad example here? Should he be corrected in this struggle that he's showing to us? Or is the Bible presenting him as being onto something? And I would just immediately answer that question with the assertion that Paul is onto something. We are seeing something in Paul that is held out for us to imitate. And I make that assertion for three reasons. Number one, Paul is writing as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's writing inspired scripture to us, the very word of God. Number two, he tells us to imitate him. And number three, therefore, the things about him and his thinking that we are shown in Scripture like this are to be taken as exemplary. So then, if we're clear about this struggle, it's our task this morning to wrestle with the way that Paul's words and descriptions here should be absorbed into our thinking about who God is, who we are, how he works, what his promises are. In other words, it's our task this morning to wrestle with how the, these descriptions should be absorbed into our theology. There are reasons Paul is struggling about this decision. And understanding those reasons goes so far for us in shaping us and shaping our thinking about God and his purposes. In particular this morning, the questions that we're going to ask for the rest of our time are how does Paul's example here inform our theology of death 
And how does this example inform our theology of life? My friends, there is always a right way and a wrong way to pursue the mindset that Paul is holding out to us here. And the stakes are quite high in that. So we have to be very intentional to think about how this is to dictate our thoughts, both about death and about life. Let's start with death, because why not? Let's start with death. Notice first the things Paul writes here about death. Verse 21, it is gain to him. Verse 23, it is his desire. Verse 23, to depart in death is to depart and be with Christ. Verse 23, to die is far better. How are we to understand all of these positive things Paul is saying about death here? Isn't death our great enemy? Isn't death held out as the last enemy to be destroyed in God's redemptive purposes? How are we to think about these positive statements? You realize, I expect, we are most certainly people who are capable of taking these verses, verses 21 to 23 of Philippians chapter 1, and making a whole theology of death from just them, and coming out of the other side far too positive about death. And we will be able to do that if we are not taking these things and looking at them through a whole Bible lens. We always have to do that as we come to God's Word. So what we have to do this morning is to take the time to understand the particular point that Paul is giving to us here. He is not saying here everything that could be said about death. He is making a particular point for us. We have to understand that point, and we'll be able to do that if we remember some things about Paul. If we remember what Paul was taught by the Lord, if we remember what experiences Paul has already been led through as Jesus taught him. If we do those things, we will be able to follow him in the particular mindset that he's holding out to us. So remember some things. Remember, we learn in 1 Corinthians 9 that Paul has seen the risen Lord. Galatians 1, he describes that he received his teaching from Christ himself. What is it that Jesus has shown Paul that he's told us about? And beyond that, what does the Bible show us about how Jesus explained death? When Jesus taught in these ways about death, how did Jesus teach? What would have been the instruction that Paul learned from Christ that would lead him to say these things? Let's look at a couple of passages together. Look with me first at 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And I want to read the, the, the first 10 verses of that chapter. It's a big section. We'll read the whole thing to make one point. So it must be important. There's a lot that we could say and do with, with this passage, 2 Corinthians 12, 1 to 10. But I just want us to to look at it long enough to understand what he's saying. Paul is in the midst of defending himself against attacks from a group of men who are calling themselves super apostles. And they've questioned Paul's legitimacy as an apostle of Jesus Christ. The situation has made it necessary for him to defend himself. So he's in the midst of defending himself. He refers to it as boasting. He laments at how foolish it is 
that they've driven him to the need to do this. You can see chapter 11, verse 1, chapter 11, verse 16. You can tell he feels awkward even needing to speak of himself like this, but that's what's going on, and that's the reason for it. It's in the midst of that, then, in chapter 12, Paul describes an experience he had 14 years prior. He tries to word it humbly, and for that reason, he speaks about it in the third person. But if you listen, it's very obvious that he's talking about himself. Chapter 12, starting in verse 1. I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. In part, I read all of that to reinforce the claim I've made that has been well recognized, that Paul's speaking about himself. But the real point for this morning is this. When we're hearing from Paul, we're hearing from a man who has actually been shown what it is like to stand in the heavenly presence of God. He calls it the third heaven here, simply because he's a Hebrew. He's speaking the way that they speak. They used the word heaven to describe three realms, whereas we use the word to just describe one. For them, the first heaven was what we call the sky, the atmosphere, well, where the birds dwell. The second heaven was outer space, where the sun, moon, and stars dwell. And the third heaven was the dwelling place of God. So when he speaks of being let to see into the third heaven, he's simply saying, I was brought into the very presence of God himself and let to see what is awaiting us. Here's why that matters this morning. When Paul writes that to depart in death is to be with Christ, Paul writes about something that he knows from personal experience. He has not died, but he has been given to see what it is, to see what it's like in the very presence of the enthroned Christ. And what he saw, although he is not permitted to speak of it, to describe it, yet it drove the way he spoke then about life after death. He found that Jesus' promises were true 
to a degree that we find surprisingly difficult to accept. I'm thinking here of a particular teaching that we have been given in God's Word. I'm thinking of what Seth just read to us, what Jesus said to Martha in John 11, 25 and 26. Let me remind you again of what we read there, and would you, look, would you just turn over there for a moment to see a couple of things for yourself. John 11, 25 and 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. We saw this quite a while back when we went through John chapter 11 together. We have to understand that Jesus is making two claims about himself, not one. There's two claims in verse 25. There is the claim, I am the resurrection. This is to tie the future bodily resurrection, the one that Martha just alluded to, the verse before, this is to tie the future bodily resurrection to him, physical life to him. But then there's the claim, I am the life. This is a claim that goes beyond physical life. This is something that goes to the enduring reality of life itself, the principle of being alive. We read in John 1, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. And you need to notice that after he makes those two claims in verse 25, he expands on both of them. The end of verse 25 expands on the first, and verse 26 expands on the second. End of verse 25, he expands on physical resurrection life when he says, whoever believes in me, though he die... Yet shall he live, yet will he come to live again. An acknowledgement of the inevitability of true physical death, but the promise that that death will not hold sway forever. But then he says in verse 26 about the second thing that he said, whoever has my life and believes in me, what? Shall never die. What is the reality that Paul has personally witnessed in heaven and that Jesus taught all of us, including Paul? It's the reality that physical death is not an end to life for those whose faith is in Christ, for those whom he has given eternal life. And I know that saying something like that sounds like the trite kinds of sayings that we are accustomed to. But it means that when Paul saw what he was given to see as he received a glimpse into the heavenly presence of God, what Paul saw was people, living people, separated from their earthly bodies. Yes, and what sort of form of existence that was exactly, we have no idea, but we are told that they sing praises to God, Revelation 4. We're told that they rest from their labors, Revelation 14. We're told that they ask Jesus questions and hear answers from him, Revelation 6. Physical death for the believer serves one purpose. It moves one into the direct presence of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, where they go right on living forever with a life that will never escape them. Paul knows this. He has seen this. 
And friends, isn't it significant to us that the one the one who has actually been <clears throat> given a sight of what awaits us found it to be very difficult to wait for? I think it's something that God did not allow him to speak of what he saw, but that he did allow him to, to tell us that he saw it. It serves such a protective purpose for us. We can hear Paul here say things like, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. And actually, in what he wrote, there's three intensifiers. He says, for that is much better no, excuse me, more better by much. This is what he wrote. He piled them on top of each other. It lets us hear that and know that we're not just hearing somebody who is that much more spiritual, spiritual-minded than us in some sort of a way that we might think of that expression. We're hearing somebody who is talking about something that he has gotten to personally witness. And what he saw, he can't wait to receive. These are the elements that we have to have in place as we absorb verses 21 to 23 in particular into our theology of death. We must embrace the command of our Lord. It's a command to recognize that physical death is not the end of our physical existence. Though we die, yet will we come to live again at the resurrection? And what's more, we must acknowledge that if we have been given true life through faith in Christ, that is a life that will never be lost to us. We will never die. We will live and reign with Him at rest and in an existence so wonderful that the only tourist ever to visit wanted nothing more than to go there. And from there we will await our resurrection when even the lesser reality of physical death will itself be conquered. This is the reality that Paul is holding out to us. There is much more to be said about the general concept of death. We hate death as our enemy. Christ came to die that he might put death to death. Those things are true. What Paul is calling us to here is that very kind of eternal mindset that he has already begun to show us in his example. And so as he reflects on what's coming for him, he reflects out of this eternal mindset that Christ has given him. And in so doing, we are given a tremendous example to see and to test ourselves against and to follow. Now let's turn then to the effort of absorbing these verses into our theology of life. I've come away this last week thoroughly struck by something. I always wonder when, when something strikes me powerfully, whether it's actually very commonplace and everyone else is thinking and I'm just very uh, dull. That, that happens sometimes. But I was struck by the thought of just how utterly determinative my theology of death winds up being upon my theology of life. What I think about death completely shapes 
how I will think about, how I will approach the duty of living. If I become convinced that physical death marks the end of my existence in every way, then how could I possibly avoid living a bucket list mentality, living a life that feels desperate to do and experience as much as I possibly can in this life? How could I not live that way? If my theology of death says, on that last day, that's it in every way. The two are completely linked together. If I become convinced that physical death brings me immediately before a set of scales where my good deeds are weighed against my bad deeds, then how could I possibly avoid a life of desperate efforts at self-justification? with all of the pride that comes with that, with all of the rationalization and excuse-making, and with all of the despair that goes with that. Paul referenced the common mentality of his day and of ours in 1 Corinthians 15, 32, when he said, If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. He was giving voice to this very reality of this connection. But you see... What if, what if, having been justified by faith, we have, <laughs> we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, which of course is what Romans 5.1 assures us. What if death is gain because to depart in death is only to be with Christ in paradise? Philippians 1, 21 to 23. What is that? If that, then what is life? Well, life then, this life, can simply become the training ground in which I begin to learn what it is to serve my Lord, for whom I have been created, and for whose glory I have been recreated and born again. If that is death, then I have no needs. He has loved me and given himself for me. Romans 8, 32. If God didn't spare his own son for us, what will he not give to us? Or as Paul puts it there, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? I am in life, if that is what death is, then I am in life set completely free. How often does the Bible portray our new life in Christ as a life of liberation, of freedom? The Christian life is a life that has been set free. Not to live in chaos or rebellion. That was what enslavement was. It has been set free to actually be what it was made to be in the first place. Here in verse 21, Paul puts it like this. To live is Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5.15, he puts it a different way. He says, He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. This is the freedom that is ours in life because that's what death is. Our theology of death determines, it shapes our theology of life. We have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer we who live, but Christ lives in us. 
And the life which we now live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God, who loved us and gave himself for us. If death is gain, then life is Christ. Hearing this from Paul most certainly gives us a sense, however vague and lofty it may be at this point, of the way that we are to view our, char- our charge in what remains for us of this life. I mean, he makes those, those true and broad statements, to, to live as Christ, to die as gain. But see how helpful that Paul actually then goes on in this text to flesh that out. He goes on to flesh out for us what that means about life. This is a concept, if ever there was one, that needs flesh put on the bones. In part, I think, because we can be such dramatic creatures, can't we? I mean, a man can daydream about the moment with music in the background where he pushes his wife out of the way of oncoming traffic and takes the hit himself. He can feel very masculine, very life-giving to her. And in that same day, completely refuse to live for her instead of for himself. He will die for her in his imagination, but in his life, his own desires and comfort put her into the back seat. We are thoroughly capable of being so dramatic that we would be satisfied with that. And maybe we do that with our Savior as well. Our thoughts may sometimes go to the matter of staying faithful to our confession, even at the cost of our lives. Well, my friend, the day may well come when he asks you to lay down your life for him. That day may come. But he has already asked you to lay down your life for him on this day. And he's told you how to do it. He will say in chapter 2, verse 3 of this letter, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is the same mindset he points to in our passage as he fleshes out the counter possibility to death in Christ. It is life in Christ. And what characterizes that life? He says in verse 24, going even further into detail than to live is Christ. He says in verse 24, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Again, think about what we've said about the way that our theology of death shapes our theology of life. It turns out, because I've been made to die in Christ, that I might live in him with the life that he possesses in himself and gives, it turns out that that means I'm not on this planet to grab as much personal pleasure as possible. And I'm not on this planet to find a way to save myself or to earn God's favor. So then why am I here? It was Christ himself who said, all the law and the prophets depend on these two commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. My friends, can I draw your attention to two things? Having just 
reference that? First and most simply, do you notice that both of those commandments require me to look away from whom? To look away from myself. We heard it already in 2 Corinthians 5.15. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Why am I here? I am here to be a useful instrument in God's hands for God's glory. My days are numbered already. And the moment that God's plans to use my life for his glory are all checked off, in that moment I will die. And my death, too, will be useful in his hands for his glory. That's the first thing. We are not here for ourselves, but for him, for his use. Thus is the first and greatest commandment. Second thing to notice, it is striking that he said that about those two commandments. I was quoting from Matthew 22. He said that in answer to the question, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment? And he answered it, Love the Lord your God with everything about you. But he wouldn't answer it without adding, without including a second commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself. Can I suggest to you there's a reason for that, that he did not answer the direct question, what is the greatest commandment? He responded with them both. The fundamental way we show our love for God, the fundamental way we're used as instruments for God's glory, is by being used in the lives of the divine image bearers that he has put within our sphere. It's what's modeled in verses 24 and 25, isn't it? What is it that is so weighty to Paul that it would balance out his desire to depart and be with Christ, so that he's torn between the two ideas. What is it that's so weighty? It is his call, his opportunity to be a useful blessing in the lives of those that God has put into his sphere. He knows the weightiness of that. He desires that, because it's the reason he lives. Let's end this morning with two final observations. I would take these things that we're seeing here and just notice what they mean. Here's the first. The focus here has been on Paul's eternal mindset, hasn't it? It's given him the perspective to appreciate that in Christ, death has truly and utterly lost its sting. To die is gain because the only power it has over me is that of transferring my spirit directly into the glorious presence of my Savior. We focused on that this morning and on the result that then was produced in Paul's outlook on life. He understands its purpose to be instrumental usefulness in bringing glory to God. This is the purpose of his life. And the way he particularly expects to do that is through a life lived not for glory or for pleasure, not for self, but instead for the joy of being poured out for the good of others, to the glory of God. Not for their glory, not for their pleasure, but for the glory and pleasure and honor of God. The first of my two closing observations is simply this. Notice what's coming. Notice that Paul is not at all content to simply say, 
This is how I approach what is left of my life. Notice that Paul will hold this mindset out as normative for all believers. Look what's coming. Next verse, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And look down at chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And he goes on to say we do this because in doing this we are in fact following the example of the one whose image we've come to bear. This is simply the Christian outlook on life. It's not Paul's outlook on life. It's the Christian outlook on life. And therefore it is Paul's outlook on life because he has been brought into union with Christ. We have to notice that. Secondly, notice that Paul has described his preference between these two possible outcomes, death or life, as something hard to choose between. It's a struggle in him. He does explicitly say, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, but he clearly is then saying, without using so many words, I also feel a desire to live on because of the purpose with which God has, has given me. It's hard to choose between these for Paul. He can acknowledge that personally to be with Christ is far better, and yet since he truly desires to be useful in his hands for the good of others, he says, I'm hard-pressed between the two. And actually that phrase is a pretty intense phrase. I am hard-pressed. Anytime we recognize that we are in no sense hard-pressed between the two, we can know that we are in need of adjustment. If there is nothing in me that feels a longing to depart and be with Christ, there is some growth that needs to happen. Now, it may just be, I think this is very natural and understandable, it may just be that I haven't lived enough life yet. Life has a way of creating that longing, doesn't it? God is very good at shaping this in us. So it may simply be that I haven't lived enough life yet to, 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 to think and feel in these ways. But it may also be, and they may both happen at the same time, but sometimes even when we have lived enough that we ought to sense the preference, we ought to sense the wonder and the rest and the beauty of what awaits us, we don't. It may also be that I'm not spending enough time asking the Bible to teach me about what it is telling me to look forward to. And can you sense in this, it is telling you, Christian, to look forward to what he has in store. So I'm struggling that way because they have no, if they're honest, no wrestling on the side of wanting to depart and be with the Lord. For others especially in certain difficult seasons of life, the opposite can be true, can't it? We just heard this morning from Sinclair Ferguson. There's something that he wrote about this with his usual clarity and helpfulness. And I'd share that with you. He said this, Christians who have few gifts or are weakened by illness or who have grown frail in old age should pay special attention to Paul's words here. 
It is all too easy to feel that you are useless, even a burden to others, and to wish to be away. But here is the secret of maintaining a sweet spirit in adversity. I have a glorious prospect before me when I am, when I am with Christ. But for the present, that same Christ means to help others through my presence with them. Even although I can do very little practically, nevertheless, to me, to live is Christ. When other Christians see that, they will be encouraged and cheered on their way. Indeed, there are few richer blessings than being in the presence of someone who obviously lives for Christ. That is Christian service. When I can't teach, when I lose the ability to teach with actions, I can teach with words. When I can't even serve him with words, perhaps sometimes, I can serve him by striving for a peaceful, humble, and joyful posture that finds its strength in the belief, listen, that God knows how to count very well. And that he has numbered my days in a way that is exactly right. And that so long as I live on in the flesh, in the hands of God, that represents fruitful labor for his sake. He doesn't have to show it to me for it to be true. Because I know he knows how to count. And the moment he is done pouring my life out, to the great honor of, to my great honor, pouring my life out for the glory of his name, the moment he is done with the plans from before the foundation of the earth that he intended for me in this life, he will bring me to be with him. And until that day, he is not finished putting himself on display. May we as God's people possess a theology of death that reflects the eternal mindset he's given us in his word so that then we may be able to live from a theology of life that longs for the glory of Christ above all else. Would you pray with me? Father, we see an example like that that is put out for us here in this text, and we sense our great neediness. We sense our shortcomings and our frailty, our fear. And it makes us cry out to you. God, thank you that because of who you have shown us that you are, we cry out to you in a Christian way. We cry out to you, fully understanding our dependency upon you, fully understanding your sufficiency, that every blessing that we need to walk in this life in a way that is pleasing to you, it has been given us when you gave us your son. God, would you continue your good work in your people, transforming our thinking, out of which our, our will shifts and shapes, out of which our emotions shift and shape so that we would think as you have taught us to think, not simply out of rote obedience, but because we've been convinced, we've been convinced to live is Christ and to die is gain. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Let me invite you once more, would you stand with me? Let's respond to our God in song.